Welcome to the Book Hub, an online event space hosted by Luther Seminary. In this episode, Rosalind Hughes, author of Whom Shall I Fear? Urgent Questions for Christians in an Age of Violence, discusses biblical frameworks for tough conversations in church. So I think in our next part of this presentation, uh, Rosalind's going to talk about um, working with a biblical framework to address a tough topic, and then Elizabeth will walk us through her framework. One of the comments that I've seen a couple of times um, since I think I think it was Leanne posted the question, um, what holds you back as a leader from talking about these things um, is is maybe I don't know enough about the topic or maybe maybe I'm not an expert in this particular area and that's okay because one of the things that we can do as pastoral leaders is bring what we do have expertise in um, which is prayer and immersion in the bible and and in our church traditions um, we can bring that teaching element that we are trained in to bear on all kinds of topics um, so, and, and this is the approach that, that I take in, in Whom Shall I Fear is, as I said a little earlier, going back to the Bible, going back to scripture, um, to find out what God's word is to us before we go to the culture. So, um, at a recent Bible studying meeting about healing at my church, someone quoted the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And I reminded them gently one more time, that this sentiment, while it's very popular, is not quite as biblical nor theologically simple or sound as popular culture might want to tell us. Um, and this is more, this is about more than biblical literacy, because reading the Bible does not of itself guarantee wisdom. You know, Shakespeare said, even the, even the devil can cite the Bible for his own purposes. But when it comes to discussing difficult topics, and especially the ones that our popular culture already has a head start on deciding for us, um, then returning to the basis of our faith, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ in scripture and in prayer and in sacrament and in community, this can be kind of a reset for us. Um, you know, like baptism, our immersion in the gospel gives us something of a clean slate to work from. So I, I want to give you an example that demonstrates both the dangers and the gifts of turning to Bible study for help with these difficult topics. So in Luke's gospel, just as, just as they're all gathering for the Last Supper, Jesus asks the disciples, when I sent you out without a purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, not a thing. And he said to them, but now the one who has a purse must take it and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. And they said, Lord, here, here are two swords. And he replied, it is enough. But by the end of that evening, during that awful arrest in the garden, when the disciples drew the sword to sever the ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave, Jesus rebukes them and heals him, and according to Matthew, warns that those who live by the sword will die by it. 
And we live these contradictions within our communities. You know, I doubt that there is a church represented here that doesn't include both gun owners and gun users and pacifists alike. And coming together in Bible study, as you all well know, doesn't give us easy answers to the dilemmas that assault us. But the backdrop of the garden, the presence of Christ's passion, give us an opportunity to ask honestly of Jesus, what then would you have us do? Um, so in whom shall I fear? I offer this reflection and I'm going to read kind of selectively here. There's a way of reading the life of Christ that finds it to be suffused by prophetic action that both foreshadows and ushers in the coming of the kingdom of God. By his word, Jesus both unveils and makes real the will of God. His feeding thousands with a few loaves and fish recalls the providence of God in the wilderness, feeds the people in the moment, and predicts a future of God's abundant new providence, an outpouring of sustaining grace. I'm going to skip ahead a little here. So if the final conversation between Jesus and his disciples before his arrest is read as a prophetic drama, then the setup question, when I sent you out without a purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything, is like his sly question to Philip in John 6, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus breaks open the disciples' reliance on old ways of thinking, whether it's calculating the cost of enough bread for the crowd or calculating how many swords one might need to fight for the coming kingdom of heaven. It is enough, Jesus says, of the swords and tacitly of the bread and fish. I'm going to skip ahead once more. In between the offering of a few fish and loaves of bread and the outpouring of new manna, God multiplied food for the 5,000, Jesus prays his thanksgiving, and in between the ironic acceptance of two swords and the scene in the garden, Jesus prays his anguish. The prophetic drama is completed when the disciples still slow to understand how it is that Jesus will save them, and how the giving up of his life will in fact bring life to the world. They strike with the sword, queuing up Jesus once more for an outpouring of healing mercy, forgiving, saving grace beyond our imagination. This whole episode, I write, in Whom Shall I Fear, might have been Jesus pressing the point home one last time that the life he brings is not paid for by the life of any other. Now, some will say that this is sidestepping the issue by hiding in the Garden of Gethsemane, and others may accuse me of twisting the scriptures to my own agenda. And let's face it, we all do that to a certain extent. But as it, at its best this immersive approach allows some space between the urgency of now and the timelessness of the gospel in which to contemplate a better way in which to imagine thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven when one of my children was was an infant i was the secretary to the parish council in the days when you had to take the the minutes by hand i am that old uh, since he was nursing, he had to come to meetings with me and I had to learn to write ambidextrously while I was juggling him. <laughs> After a couple of meetings, the priest came to visit me at home and he looked at the baby and he said, keep bringing him to the meetings. No one dares raise their voice in anger when there's a baby on the breast in the room. The presence of the tenderness of the compassion of Christ and the awesome wonder of the word of God, the danger 
that the Holy Spirit might break in at any moment. Basing our conversations on difficult topics in these things can change the whole atmosphere. Somebody's asking, can you talk about some of the repercussions of having these conversations? It, you know, it is a great, a great question, and we can't eventually be bound by imagining how people might react, whether they might get angry. We have to trust in what we have from God to offer. And I do recognize the difficulty of that. And I think Elizabeth's going to get in more into the specifics of how to deal with that in a little bit. But first, I want to offer one more example from Whom Shall I Fear? When I was writing the chapter about hospitality and visitor profiling, which is one of the techniques suggested by those, you know, active shooter seminars, I got hung up on the story from Act 16 about the girl who was following Paul and Silas around, telling everyone that they were sent by the Most High God to proclaim the way of salvation, which was true. But she was doing it so loudly and so annoyingly that Paul exorcised her. And you remember that this got Paul and Silas arrested and jailed for depriving the girl's masters of their income since they used her spirit of divination for profit. And in prison, Paul and Silas sang hymns that summoned up an earthquake which freed them. And taking pity on the terrified jailer, Paul preached the gospel to him, baptizing him and his whole family such that the profits of the young woman's work for the gospel were beyond reckoning. And yet we don't know her name or what happened to her after she lost her power to bring in income for those who'd enslaved her. She was too loud and annoying for Paul and we hear no more about her. She's not included in the happy ending of baptism, which I think is to our shame. Entering imaginatively into the stories of the Bible can open us up to new ways of seeing one another and our neighbors and new compassion and empathy. So just a few practical tips for framing a conversation or discussion in that kind of Bible study. Obviously, do the research. Scour the scriptures for examples that might address your theme whether they're in agreement with you, whether they're in agreement with one another or not, own the contradictions and allow them to question any kind of preformed judgments. Pray without ceasing, <laughs> goes without saying. Consult commentaries and the traditions of your church, but without allowing them either to predetermine the conversation. Be humble, but own the word that God has given you. You know, we had a conversation in a, a community group recently. We've been having an ongoing conversation about addressing racism in the community in which I live, which is just outside of, of uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And one of the things that came up was the matter, the matter of tone, of how we speak to one another, and of whether that is more or less important than the content. And and one of the places that we came to is that um, some things are important enough to be said directly, even if some people don't want to hear them directly. If that's the word that God has given to you, trust the Holy Spirit to have your back. Whatever that may look like. 
we know we're on the way of the cross, so it's not going to be easy. If it helps, blame the author. Um, for example, if you like the idea of prophetic action that I've laid out around the swords, but you aren't sure that your people are going to like it quite as much, offer it to them as the writing of some odd Episcopal priest, which you just happen to find interesting. <laughs> Use me as a buffer. I'm okay with that. Um, know that the work of grace among us is conversion far more than it is confirmation. And this is something I struggle with, but be genuinely open to having your own hearts transformed by the opening of scripture and community and the stories that you hear from the people who are reading it and take the risk of conversion. Model the risk of conversion, I might say. I'm preaching to myself here. <laughs> On a similar note, don't assume that you know how others will read the passages that you bring. And I mentioned a little earlier, colleagues tell me that they can't raise the topic of gun violence in church because of the number of gun owners in their congregations. But they're longing for peace in their hearts and their spirits and their communities as well. And I, I know that some of you will have a different relationship to guns than I do, but I'm confident that we all share the desire and the will to end violence. Begin and end in prayer, and if you anticipate a particularly difficult discussion, invite people to pray for you in that moment. Allow the wider Christian community to hold you and surround you in prayer as you focus on your people of God. So in a minute, Elizabeth's going to give you some really great and specific and practical tools. I know this because I've read her book for how to structure these kinds of conversations in ways that do keep people talking to one another and to you. Um, and in the meantime, if I can be of any assistance to you, I'd be glad to hear from you. Uh, you can contact me through my website. I'm fairly easy to track down. Mm -hmm. So peace be with you and with yours. <laughs>